Now listen. There was, before we were even taken into captivity, promises. Promises that God had given all the way back in Genesis 15, that we would be taken in captive by own and be there for four generations, and on that fourth generation we would go free with riches. Understand that the promise was before us of deliverance and freedom from captivity even before we were in captivity. And please know, that's always God's MO. All the way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, we read that Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest to us in these last times. Now understand the point's simple. God, in his infinite, perfect knowledge, knows before there was ever a need how to meet that need. Nothing takes God by surprise. And he knew that there would be captivity. He knew the struggles you would have, that I would have. And before those struggles even came to be, he knew the bondage we would experience. He knew the pain we would experience. The whip of the taskmaster. He knew all of it. Every stripe that we would have earned or not earned, he knew it. And he already had an answer beforehand and an ordained time when that would, be, when that would come to pass. And that promise was a deliverer. And that deliverer was God himself. As Isaiah says, there's no other savior but God. Exodus chapter 3 and 8 tells us, God says, I have come down to deliver out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, of the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Listen, the promise was getting us out and then getting us in. That was the promise. God didn't just say, I'll remove you from your captivity. Please understand that this is one of the radical differences between Jesus and everything else. Other things might say, well, this is where you are. We can get you out of that. But everything, that's not deliverance, that's removal. Jesus always promises deliverance. And deliverance means you have to go from someplace to another place. Think about it in the world today. If you were to go and ask for a pizza and say, I want it delivered, only in the Christian church would somebody wave their hands over and say, I cast out of you the spirit of anchovies, or whatever. It's delivered, but it still sits on the counter and gets old. Anywhere else in the world, when you're like, I need something delivered, the obvious question is, to where? Or it's not really delivered. It's just removed. And so when people, we tell people, I've been delivered, they have a right to ask, to where? And if they don't, they're probably not really paying attention. On the other side of it, it tells us, we were once darkness, but now we're light. We were once children of darkness, but we were delivered out of the power of that darkness into the Son He loves. Every destination of deliverance in Scripture is to God Himself. The moment you surrender to the gift of Jesus, if you have, the one who died on a cross for your and my sins, rose again to give us new life. From that moment on, He sealed you with His Holy Spirit, and you were then with the address God himself from that point forward. That's the point. The promise was not just taking you out, it was getting you in. So he got us out by taking us, it was his, I should say this, by taking down every other God that we have known in Egypt for 400 years. He, to get us out, he had to, there was the death of the Lamb of God and the wrath upon really what seems historically the only begotten son of Pharaoh. To get us out, 
He has to bring the enemy right before us and destroy him right before us. Now, there are some of us that don't like that. Some of us don't like to see the battle in front of us at all. But can I warn you, if they had just removed them from Egypt, they would have always spent the rest of their life with one eye open, waiting to see when the enemy would come back. But for God to take the battle right in front of them and then take them down in front of them shows us they'll never be a threat again. Do you know, interestingly enough, at that, the next thing we read is the first worship song in Scripture. And can I say... Perhaps that's the problem for some of us. We come here and we want to sing. And we want to praise God. But we still feel like the enemy's right in front of us. We still feel like somehow we're a sucker to him and we're in bondage. Well, God never had them sing any worship songs in Egypt. God never even told Moses to sing that worship song. That was the natural result of watching the enemy taken down in front of you. Now, having said that, once we were out... And can I say this? Once we were out, our appetite started to be revealed. Now, also revealed with that was my natural inclination to make myself a victim. I was naturally predisposed. Oh, I'm just such a victim now. God brought me out here to die. But God also revealed in my appetites and in my natural appetite to make myself a victim that God was the answer, my only answer and my only hope. And so the water was made sweet by God. He rained bread by God. Everything that happened was done by God and we only give him the credit. And maybe if you've said yes to Jesus, you know how this is. You know what it's like to be able to have that period of time where it just seemed like the only way. You were put in a position where everything about your life was, I need a miracle. You lived in a place where unless a miracle happened, you were not getting anywhere. But God did it anyways. And once we were out at that point, we now are free from the taskmaster's whip. But now new battles are to be fought. And in Exodus 17, it was Amalek, who, by the way, will always be an archetype for the flesh. They attacked the haggardly, the elderly, the weak. And off they went. And it was there, if you remember, the battle again was brought right before them. But for Moses, all he had to do was raise his hands and the victory was there. The victory for the flesh will always be with, you'll always win it with your hands up, if that hands up is surrendering to the Lord. That's really where the battle starts and ends. And then God sets up his camp with him in the center. And he sets up five distinct sacrifices to approach him. The burnt, the grain, the peace, the sin, and the trespass offerings. And at that moment in time, we're at the end of Exodus, the beginning of Leviticus, those books that people try to read through quickly, all of a sudden our whole life is in order. By the time we get to the beginning of Numbers, we know where we are. And please, please hear me in this. We may not know where we are in the world, but we know where we are in the camp. And that's very different. Welcome back. Now, please hear me. God sets himself up in the center. As he sets himself in the center, he says, here's the issue. Each tribe has their own place in the camp. But he didn't say how close or far to the center. That was your choice. Just what side of the camp you were on, that was his. So if you were from Reuben, you were on one side. If you were in Judah, you were on another. But the idea is on each one of those things, you were put in a place, and then God allowed you by your own choice whether you wanted to be closer to the camp or the outside of it. The outskirts of the camp will always be the place where there's the most complaining and the place, by the way, where you find the most defeat. On the other side of it, on the inside of the camp, always seems to be the place of the greatest victory and praise. But now for this moment... We know, here are the sacrifices. Here's our God in the center of the camp. 
And here we are, right where we belong. And there becomes that time where when you surrender to the Lord, and the Lord starts to show you He's the answer for every appetite, that there's this moment, have you had it yet, where you're just like, ah, right where I belong. For the first time in my life, I feel like the dust can settle, and I'm just pleased to be right here. The problem is, Sooner or later, God starts to show us we need to disengage from the past and engage the future. See, remember, it wasn't just removal, it was deliverance, and there becomes the problem. And sooner or later, we could just be happy to see how God did all of these miracles in the past, but we don't look to the future where God starts to say, I have more, I have fruitfulness for your life, and not just no bondage. So with that, we start to show our reveal. What we really do is we reveal our tenacious failure to engage that faith and what God has still promised. So how do we do it? Let's send out spies. And what we're going to do is we're going to basically suss out for ourselves whether it's worth it. And we have to do that by two things. One is the value of the prize, and the second is the size of the battle. The value of the prize. Is the land everything God said it was? Second, is the battle bigger than God said it was or not? Well, there were giants to fight. But that was God's problem. There was also giant fruit to be gained, and that was his promise. But when we said we wouldn't fight, the challenge was overwhelming now. Not worth the fight, because I'm afraid if I fight there, I will die there. God says, strangely enough, you'll die here because of it. But the promise still remains. The promise now for a second generation, the old man must die, the new must then rise up. And what we have in the remainder of the book of Numbers now is a 40-year death march. What it's going to take to see the old man lost so the new man can rise up to enter into the promised land. So why the book of Deuteronomy, the only book remaining in the Torah after this? Because Moses has to sit down with a brand new generation and warn them not to do what their family did before this. So really, if you will, it's one big sermon to say, you guys, listen, you should remember many of you what it was like. Remember, some of those people will be born in these 40 years. It's like, let's review this to be sure we know where we belong before we jump back into this, because I don't want to see you make this mistake twice. So strange, last week we are like, no way, I'm not going. Heck no, we won't go. And yet in all of that, strangely enough, God adds this right in between that and a great rebellion we'll see next week. And great by, I mean large, not great, like it's wonderful. And he puts this here, of all things. It's like, okay, if you don't want to engage your faith, This needs to happen. Really. Or can I say, welcome to the beginning of seeing the old man die. Now, for what it's worth, right before we jump into this, and I know that's been fairly lengthy, but follow me for a moment patiently if you would. There is this five-section thing here, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the same way, I don't know if you're familiar with that in the book of Numbers, but there's five sections to the book of, I'm sorry, of Romans. There's five sections to the book of Romans, too. And each one starts with a letter S to kind of help you. Chapters 1 and 2 focus on sin. 3 through 5 focus on salvation. 6 through 8 focus on sanctification. God's setting you apart now that you're His. 9 through 11, God shows that He's sovereign and smart. And then chapters 12 through 16, service. How to prepare you now to serve. Interestingly enough, that's what we have in the Torah. Genesis shows us the original sin. Exodus shows us salvation, removing us from Egypt. Leviticus shows us how God sets us apart. Numbers shows us how God is sovereign and smart. That's the idea. And then Deuteronomy, how God prepares us for service, fruitfulness as we get into the land. That's the whole thing. He's been setting us up with that all here. And in this now God says, remember those sacrifices? He takes us back 
to the one moment when our life was orderly. Strangely enough. You know, God does that a lot. If you remember, he did that with Peter, right? After Peter denied him three times, brings him back to that place where he called him. But it wasn't just Peter. He brought them all back. And interestingly enough, it says that he brought him back to, an, uh, to a mountain he had prepared for them. And I can't help but think that mountain's the one we saw back in Matthew 4 and 5 when his disciples simply knew if I could get him to Jesus, he could fix him. And there are times in the life, listen, where God will make your life spartan again. Man, things are big and they're complicated and they're wonderful. They seem so glistening and glittery like you're a giant Christmas tree. And then all of a sudden things are so complicated and those things that were wonderful are now not so cool and you're kind of grumbling and those things that were opportunities are now obligations and you kind of your shoulders are burled and, and everything's rough marriage is rough children is rough work is rough you know sitting on the bus is rough there was a time you sat on the bus and you just giggled at people because they were weird in front of you there was a time you sat on the train and you were like this is fun I just know someone's going to sit here I'm just going to go that's a cool weird person whatever now all of a sudden it's like oh that person smells and all oh, that and strangely enough probably you do too And God, you know what he does often? Is he shakes the tree. He shakes the tree so all of those decorations fall off. And you know what you were left with at the end? A tree. Because you can get so decorated you forget that underneath all that is a tree. And in your life, sometimes when the Lord shakes everything, let me put it this way. In Kansas, part of Tornado Alley in America, there are times where every house, by the way, seems to have a basement. A place of refuge. Because when those tornadoes come, the lower down you get, the better you are. So when those things happen, you get in this little thing and you crawl in and it kind of looks like you're ready for a nuclear attack. And you're underneath there with your bottled water and whatever else. And you hear this thing that sounds like a train that is seven stories tall, like a train the size of the shard running over your, your, where you are. But when you're done, you look up and you know what's left? Your foundation. It's all that's left. That house you had been building on, torn to shreds. And the Lord will do that if we've built poorly with hay, wood, and stubble. Fire will whip through there and all you'll be left with is your foundation. The good news is if your foundation is Christ, you will be left with a foundation. This is where they're at now. They stood before God and said, God, how could you do this to us? So now it's the Lord's chance to speak. Verse 1, he says, the Lord spoke to Moses. Verse 2, notice he says, when. There's no doubt that God was going to get him in. So when he says, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you have come into the land, God's never changed his mind. He hasn't gone, well, now it's a little iffy. See, understand, God knows everything ahead of time. See, God knew Peter would fall before he chose him. And he still called him to ministry. Isn't that crazy? God knew how every one of those guys would have to be shaved off here and there. James and John arguing about wanting to call fire down from heaven on a whole village of Samaritans. Please hear me. When God got into this relationship with you, He he knew and knows everything. There's nothing He's going to discover and change His mind because He already knew it when He said yes. Could you imagine if we were like that? We would all live alone. This is when. When you're going into the land, you're going to inhabit, which, by the way, in case you, you seem to have forgotten, I'm giving it to you. You're not going to have to fight to win this. I'm going to give this to you. It's a promise. It's a done deal. Now, learn my grace. Learn my grace. 
Learn my grace. That's giving. That's not earning. You've got some offerings that you make. Interesting, the offerings he gives us. Look at verse 3. It's burnt offering, a vow offering, and a free will offering. Every one of those is by your choice. Burnt offerings are not required of you. They're required of the whole priesthood they do in the morning and evening. But for you, you can do it any time you want, or not at all. Now understand, the idea of that was that the entirety of the animal was consumed. Complete and absolute surrender is what it speaks of. To fulfill a vow, Lord, I love you, and just to tell you how sincere I am, I'm offering a sacrifice. A free will offering, God, I just love you, I want to give you something. No matter what these are, notice the word sweet aroma. It'll be in verse 3, verse 5, verse 10, or verse 7, sorry, 3, 7, and 10. When you make a sweet, when you want to do this, now some things are going to be required. Let me tell you what's going to be required. Verses 4 and 5. Now you need an ephah of fine flour. I'm sorry, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour. Do you see that? All of you ready to bring your tenth of ephah of fine flour? Do you even know what that is? The fine flour part, sure. What about an ephah? One-tenth of it's roughly about 3.7 pints. That gives you an idea how much you're filling up. A fourth of a hen. I mean, you have to take Benny Hen. You have to come... No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. You take a fourth of a hen. That's roughly one and a half pints of oil. And notice, by the way, in every one of these, that the oil and the wine are going to be of the same proportion. I find that interesting. So you have flour mixed with oil. And then you have this wine that you're going to pour on a fire. You're going to have to do that for, if you want to use a lamb, here's your proportions. One-tenth and a quarter. If it's a ram, it's two-tenths and one-third. Roughly seven and a half pints of fine flour. Roughly two, a little bit more than two pints of oil and of wine. If it's a bull, now that's a much larger animal, well then it's going to be a little bit larger too. Three-tenths of an ephah and a half a hen. So that's roughly 11 pints of, of flour. And then you have roughly three pints of oil and three pints of wine. So I take a look at this and I'm thinking, what? Now I'll be honest with you, I did too. I'm like, okay, so the people wouldn't go and God says, okay, let's go back over to the sacrifice. I go, wait a minute, that was the one moment where our life was in order. And as he did, I started to look and I go, okay, so what do we have here? There are three ingredients. What are those three ingredients have to be added to every one of these now? You tell me, what are they? Flour, oil, and wine. Did you get that? So now flour has to be mixed with the oil. Interestingly enough, what do you, take, what do you call it when you take flour and you mix it with oil and then you put it on a fire? Bread. That's what you call it. It's pretty simple. Bread. So all of a sudden, with all of these sacrifices that I'm offering up, that are at my free will, it's bread and wine. That's what I'm offering up now. Strange as it is, God's like, look it, if you're going to go back to not wanting to do this, let's go back to where this has to start. And you know where it starts? It starts with the bread and the wine. That's where it starts. Can I say as a Christian, that's going to be the same for every one of us. There's that point where we could get so busy with Christianese things and Christianized things and Christianologist things and, and now you're like quoting theologians and you've got this and that and you've got this guy and I listen to all his tapes so I'm brilliant or whatever it is and I wanna, I'm ready to give you a good apology and I'm like, what did you do wrong? That's my first question. You know, and I, I've got this archaeologist that wants to show you some dust and I've got some pictures of a bone and all this but there's no joy left in you. You're not looking at the future anymore because you're busy defending your past. Really? God says, you know what you need to get back to? The bread and the wine. That's what you need to get back to. Now, we read, by the way, that any time we eat of that, of that bread and drink of the cup, this is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 
We proclaim his death until he comes. Now understand, Christianity doesn't start at church. Christianity doesn't start with a song. Christianity doesn't start with memorizing scripture. Christianity starts at the cross where Jesus died for my sins and yours. And we say, yes, Jesus, if you want to pay for my sins and exchange your innocence for my guilt, I gladly swap. But it isn't just the cross. It's the empty tomb where there's a brand new life now. And if the Lord has to whip through the entire house and tear it to shreds, so all that's left is the foundation, that's the foundation. And every other sacrifice you want to give, and notice these sacrifices, by the way, again, they're at your choice. So you come to church and you want to give the sacrifice of praise. You're out there and you want to give the sacrifice of your time or your efforts, and all of a sudden you're like, but it just isn't fun anymore. God's like, we need to get back to the bread and the wine. That's what we need to get back to. And I find it interesting that the wine and the, bread, the wine and the oil, that oil that speaks of God's anointing and that wine that speaks of God's commitment in relationship, it all makes sense to me. See, all the way through this, please hear me on this, and we'll roll this, and this will roll rather quick. Every relationship comes with a politic. Every relationship. For instance, my wife and I have been married now almost 25 years. In November, it'll be 25 years. With that relationship comes some politics you don't just hang out with the boys without calling your wife you don't make plans independently there are things that come with that but I gladly submit to those politics because those politics are the product of a relationship does that make sense I have a relationship with this beautiful young lady that looks just like her mother that's next to her my daughter I've known her now for a little more than 16 years Suzanne's known her for 17 because Moms seem to know that while they're still carrying it. With that relationship comes different politics. I'm responsible to not be a certain way in front of them because I know whatever I do that's bad, I can multiply it by five and one of my children, if not both, will do it. Some of you, you know who's nodding? Parents. I see your parents. Oh, you're like, mm-hmm, I feel you. I'm feeling you. But I gladly submit to those politics, to be honest, because of the relationship that I have with her. Does that make sense? Now, please hear me. With every relationship comes a politic. But the benefits of the relationship, the product is the politic. Does that make sense? Now, those could be, those could be construed as rules, guidelines. But that's just part of the politic. On the other side of it, if I don't have a relationship, like for instance with the government, you're probably aware of the fact the queen, with all due respect, has never invited me over for tea. I'm not bitter about the whole thing. It's okay. I do pray for her and all of the people that, are, you know, that represent us in one manner or another. They don't know me. I don't know them. They may know me as a number or whatever, but in the end of it all, we have no relationship. But they still have a standard or a politic that's required as well. But that politic, by the way, comes without a relationship. Does that make sense? So we call that laws. Laws are, in the simplest sense, the politic without the relationship. Does that make sense? Now, in a situation with my relationship with these two lovely ladies, that politic, there has to be a motivator to keep that politic. And the motivator, to be honest, is love. Love is what motivates me to keep that politic. Does that make sense? Conscience is the bell that rings, the buoy bell that rings, that makes sure that I'm acting in love. But, if I don't have a relationship, well then that's an entirely different story. Love will not motivate me to obey the government unless I'm obeying the government because the Lord told me. Does that make sense? So in that case, there has to be a different motivator, and that's called punishment. Right? 
Let's face it. If there's a speed limit sign out there and you're driving, unless you think somehow you are in danger of getting a ticket, fairly likely that you will not be motivated to keep it unless you're following the Lord. Does that make sense? So listen, there are two different sides to it. There's a politic in a relationship where love motivates. And there's a politic without a relationship where punishment motivates. Does that make sense? From the very beginning of this book, what, God's made, what God has made clear is He wants the first. The world looks, doesn't see the relationship, so what do they say? What a bunch of laws. Or the term they might use is religion. And what religion is, with a mindset, is a politic enforced by punishments with no relationship. Does that make sense? So we say things like, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. But truth is, it's a religion because of the relationship. The religion just means I'm devoted with, to my politic because of the relationship I have. I don't make it up as I go along. There are things that are expected, but I gladly submit to them because of my relationship. Does that make sense? Now God says, here's what I'm going to lay out in this chapter, boys. You can choose one side or the other. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. Sounds like a relationship, doesn't it? And I'd like you to obey my commandments as a result of that, because after all, that should come part and parcel with our relationship. But you can play the other side of it, which is, you just want to play this out as a law, but if you want to play it as a law, there's a punishment that'll come with it, and I have to enforce that punishment. Now, you can choose which motivator you want, but by virtue of which one you choose, it'll show me where you are at in regards to a relationship with me. And that's the whole point of this chapter. As he starts saying these things, he's like, look it, we need to get back to the bread and wine. Remember when our life was in order because I was in the center of the camp and you wanted to be there too? Remember that? When it really was that simple and I had a place just for you and you were happy just to sit at my feet and enjoy me and my name meant something to you and you didn't get too complicated in all the politics because it was the product of that relationship. Do you remember that? He goes, listen, here's the thing you need to know. Is that from this point on, those two things, that bread and that wine, are going to testify. That bread testifies of fruitfulness, but the wine testifies of my relationship with you. Interesting, because those are the two things they failed at when they sent spies in. So they tell us if the land was fruitful and how big the battle was. See, the bread said, this is the fruitfulness that I'm going to promise to provide for you. But the wine said, hey, I have a relationship with you as a groom. And as a groom, it's my job to protect you. And that's what they weren't seeing. And every time you'd eat of this, it's like, you know what's strange is, the one thing they brought in that was, they called the place, if you remember, Eschol, or the Valley of Clusters. What was the cluster they brought in? Remember that? It was grapes. Though they brought in other things, God made special note that that giant grapes, or at least a giant cluster of grapes, came on a pole, and it's like, that's what we were drinking. So understand, interesting, that that's what we have before us. Do you see that? And they're equal proportion. That fruitfulness I'll provide, that oil, or that wine, that oil, and the wine, they're of equal proportion. And this is why. Because the anointing I'm going to give you is going to be directly proportional to the relationship I have with you. Interestingly enough, it tells us he doesn't give us his spirit by measure. In other words, infinite amounts of his anointing. Why? Because he has an infinite desire in his relationship. So they're of equal proportion. And both are infinity. Times infinity, infinity. That's the point here. Do you get it? 
Now, all of a sudden, I start going, oh, so that's why you wanted to do that here. I, I, I get it. So then I start looking at this. So look at it with me. He tells us in verses 13 through 16, I don't care whether you're Jewish or not. Everybody has the same standard. God says this is universal. Whether you're a Jew or Greek, whether you're American or British, whether you're educated or not, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're black or white, green or purple, it doesn't matter. This is a universal standard. And I don't care whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian, whether you're a Calvary chaplain, whatever in the world, you know, denominational or non-denominational, we have to get back to the bread and the wine. And if we don't get back there, we have no foundation. And a house without a foundation, you know what a house without a foundation is? A mobile home. It moves. That's what it is. Verse 17. So then the Lord says, when you come into the land, did you notice in verse 18, he says it again, when you come into the land, not if, but when, which I'm going to bring you, and you eat of it, I also want a heave offering. Do you know what a heave offering is? That's praise. And for praise, by the way, I want that flower again. I want the fruitfulness of your own hands to lift this up. I don't want praise to be something that costs you nothing. I want it to be something where there is genuine sacrifice and surrender. I want that. And then we move from that to dealing with sin. Now, these are very different offerings. Those first offerings, remember where there were free will? You didn't have to do them, but you did anyways. It was a burnt offering. It was a free will offering. It was an offering that's like, you know what? I just really love God. I want to give it. And then we get to this, and it's like, now look at Well, what happens if you're dealing with sin? I mean, as a people... Or as an individual, it's still the same. Bread and wine is still to be brought. You see, even we as a people, if we were to stand in, where are the Nehemiahs? Who don't just say, this nation's messed up. God, blast them if you need to, but God, forgive us. And he puts him inside of it. Me and our fathers, we have sinned. There's no sin. This is the government. Uh, these people are experiencing in one way or another that isn't still a battle in my own heart. How about yours? And look at, I want you to know, I don't view myself as American. I view myself now as Britarican. In other words, you're going to hear me in my voice, so you can't get away with that. But this is my country now. And I pray God heal our country. And my heart bleeds for this country, of which I get to be a part of. I get a privilege of being a part of. So it's like, look at, when you're going to, when you're going to deal with sin, now understand it's presumptuous here. I'm sorry, not presumptuous. It's unintentional. You stumbled and you go, what do we do? Uh-oh, Lord, what do we do? I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in a bad place. Have you ever done that where you almost come to and you're like, whoa, what am I doing here? Throughout the history of Israel, what will happen is they'll stole, they'll stole, the, the temple will be riddled full of rubbish. They'll finally clean it out. They'll finally get back. Hear me, hear me, hear me. They'll finally get back to the Word. And they open up and go, oh my goodness, we're really not doing what, as well as we thought we did. Look at all this stuff we're not doing. We should have. Look at all these feasts we're not having. Please hear me in this, because this is the problem. See, the temple, and that's what God says is us now, right? Gets cluttered. It gets cluttered with rubbish. What's the, what's the rubbish that's cluttering yours? Yourself? Your friends? The way you view things? Your priorities? Whatever it is. It gets cluttered up. And you know what happens when it gets cluttered? The word gets buried in there somewhere not to be read. And somewhere down there, moments like this, God cleans house. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I just kicked this thing and I open it up. And here's the thing, most of the time when they kick it up, it's like the person who gets it knows there's writing but is illiterate, can't even read it. So they have to go bring it to someone that can read. 
But imagine for you, on the other hand, God's own spirit dwells in you if you're a Christian. The writer, the author of this book wants to... It's like, you ever read a book read by the author? It's so different from a book read by someone else. It's like, you, you, ever, you open it up and you read it. It's like the, the author is reading it to you as you read it. And all of a sudden you go, whoa, whoa. And what's strange is every time it seems like in Scripture that they discover this, the first thing they realize is, hear me, hear me. It isn't, gosh, we're breaking all these laws and we need to go and beat our breasts and, and cut ourselves and whip ourselves and show God we're sincere. You know what he says? Is, you know what we haven't been doing? We haven't been, listen, listen, listen. We haven't been feasting with, with God. That's what we're not doing. I mean, there are these times where God's like, you know what, three times a year, I just want you to come over to my house for a barbecue for a whole week. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm like, spot on, let's do this. And all of a sudden, it's like, do you realize how many times I've robbed myself of just hanging out with you, God? That's when we open his word, that's what we start to see. Because that's what we're missing. Oh, it wasn't like they weren't doing religious things. It wasn't like they weren't being busy being Jewish the same way we weren't busy being Christian. But in the end of it all, it just we get back to, I, I forgot to, to hang out with you. That's what I'm missing. You know what we need to do? When I realize that I've not been living the life I should and I've become aware of it unintentionally, I have to get back to the bread and wine. That's what I have to do. I have to get back to the place where my sins were purchased where new life was granted. That's where I have to get back to. And it goes, for the individual, I want you getting back to that bread too. So we move from that then to, well, wait a minute. No, no, well, the bread and the wine, that's where my relationship started with God. Do you get it? That's where my relationship started. Hey, beloved, please hear me. There are people out there that really want to please God, but they're doing it like it's a law from a person they don't know, from a politic that's enforced by punishment. You know what? You know what they're missing? The bread and the wine. That's what they're missing. See, on the other side of it, there are people that when Jesus said, take this, this is my body, this is my blood shed for you. And he goes, it's got to be in you. Jesus is like, I got to be in you. Not just like you need to know my stats, but I need to be in you. I get the idea. There's a relationship he's really serious about. Does that make sense? But he goes from that and he says, hey, look, at on one side there are people who are doing it, but they're doing it really because they're, they're not really aware of what's going on. And I get why Jesus says at the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're just being presumptive. You know, they don't get it. It's unintentional. As much as it is, Jesus is trying to give them a benefit of the doubt for this. But then there's another group of people. Presumptuous. Verse 30. He says, for the presumptuous person on the other end, he's a native born or a stranger. It doesn't matter. It says he's despised the word of the Lord. Verse 31. Literally held it in contempt. That person, guilt will be upon him. Do you know what the difference is? That's a person who's on this side. A person who's not about relationship. That's, and I'm sorry to do that, you guys. But let's just say over here somewhere. Is it, but you know, there's a group of people on the other hand where it's like, you know what? If a person wants to go, I don't care about your word. I'll make it up as I go along. And you're aware of the fact that all kinds of people feel like they're good with God because they made up a God that's good with where they are. It's a God who doesn't deal with their sin. He's a God who doesn't care about anything. He kind of poo-poo's all the bad stuff and just gives a big, warm, snuggly hug at the end of it all and then sends them to heaven in that condition. We ain't going to be heaven if you're in that condition when I get there. Trust me. And it's for the person that really doesn't care about this God the way he really wants to be revealed, but rather wants to make it up themselves, there's no relationship there. Interesting. Nobody makes up a God that has a relationship with them like that. 
He's a God that's to be punishing people, and we're we people that to avoid that wrath. And he goes, for that kind of person, they bear their guilt. Now, God's saying, then, which side do you want? Do you want the side that says, God, I want a relationship with you so that everything happens out of the overflow of that love? Or, God, I just want to submit to a law. I don't even want to know you. I just want to submit to a law so I don't go to hell. God didn't create you for that. Do you see the comparison there? Because then the rest of the chapter makes sense. Verse 32. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. They tuck him aside and they say, what do we do, God? And God says, this guy is to die. Why? Because he is not seeking relationship. He's back to just doing stuff. And that's a person over here. Do you get that? Not you guys, but over here. The law, without relationship, comes punishment. But then he gives us verses 37 through 41. Listen to the difference. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels. Tassels? Yeah, tassels. What is a tassel? It's a bunch of loose things tied together, isn't it? That's what it is. A bunch of loose things tied together. And put it on the corners of the garments throughout the generation and I want blue thread in it because I want you to look down and see that blue thread what does that blue thread tell me that I'm tethered to heaven that's what it tells me that I have it's like an umbilical cord to heaven you shall have the tassel that when you look on it you're going to remember what are you going to remember that God has a politic too and we're to do it the commandments of the Lord and do them listen to this that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. He says, you know what? The politic with my relationship is that I'm tethered to heaven where God lives. To remember the commands to do them and to not, hear me, to not do what's natural. You know what's natural? Follow, my unfaithful idol- follow the unfaithful idolatry of my heart and my eyes. He says, if you want to do what's natural, you'll be an adulterer. But rather, verse 40, and that you remember to do all my commandments, listen, and to be holy for your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Because I am the Lord, your God. Not just Lord God. Not just the God. I'm your God. And I want you to be my love. I want you to be able to not just say God, but my God. Not just Jesus. My Jesus. And I want the Father to be able to say, My child. Says the Lord God of Israel, I have called you by name. I have redeemed you. You are mine. Says God. Says Isaiah. When we stand before the throne of heaven, it's the only word that's going to matter. Mine. 
And I'm going to stand before my Jesus and He's going to say, Mine. And I'm going to stand before the Father and I'm going to say, Mine. And He's going to say, Mine. And there's nothing the devil can do about it. Because I ain't His. Now, wrap this up and pray with me. How cluttered is your cathedral? How complicated is the church within you? How full of stuff is the sanctuary God has intended to be a place of prayer? Full of incense, of devotion. Or are we in a place where we're afraid to read the word because we're afraid it's just more laws? This is an autobiographical love story where I am the recipient of that love. I am the object of that love. So can I ask you again? How's your sanctuary? Today, the Lord says, let's get back to the bread and wine. Let's get back to the cross where it's all paid in full and the empty tomb where he says, I did this to be with you. To be with you. To be with you. Because if that's where we start, then we gladly surrender the old man for who he's going to make us. To bring us into the place where we'll be fruitful. And the fruit we want to bear is other people who will say, My God, my Jesus. And where he'll say, My love. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ here, I want to give you that choice. Maybe you're busy on the second half of this. You're trying to do law to keep away wrath. But you have no relationship. The relationship happens at the cross. Today you can say yes with me. If you have said yes, are you willing today to let the Lord simplify? Whatever it is, bring you back to where you belong. So that from the overflow of that relationship comes life. Will you pray with me? Lord God, my Lord God, thank you for this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful text. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't just say you're done. You knew this generation would do this before you brought them out of Egypt. And you knew there'd be a generation that would go in And there are battles to be fought, we'll see in Joshua, and yet those battles, those battles are to be fought by you. But that you would bring them before us so we could see the enemy defeated, the challenge defeated, so that we wouldn't fear the challenge, but celebrate our King. 
And God, I confess to you, there are times where things can get so much more complicated than you would ever want them to be. I could overthink, and I know that overthinking is just underpraying. I could try to set all kinds of politics that doesn't exist simply because I'm not speaking with you to get what you really want, and I know what you really want in the end is to rest with you. That's the problem with a guy gathering sticks on the Sabbath. As we get to the fact that what really happens when we don't, when we sever that relationship is we cease to rest with you. To rest in your finished work at the cross. To receive the rest you give when we come to you heavy labored, exhausted. To realize that when you created man, the next thing you did was take a day off to spend with him. Forgive me, Lord, for where we've tried to work for you instead of be with you. Thank you that you aren't recruiting employees, but rather adopting children. And I pray right now, Lord, for every one of us. Maybe we're in a season where we feel like everything's about gathering sticks. Everything's about just trying to keep the law happy instead of seeking to be a blessing and a delight to you. I know, Lord, if my children did every rule of the household but didn't spend any time with me, it would be no great victory. Because they're my children. And I know that's only a small portion of what you feel. So, Lord, as you bring us back to this place, and maybe there are times in our life where you brought us to something and you're like, I have something so much greater in you, and we say, no, 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 no. That's too great of a sacrifice. That's, I'll die there. Because we've forgotten about the relationship we have with you that gets us in. Today, will you change that? Today, Lord, will you give us greater faith, greater trust in you? And I know that that comes, Lord, as we open your word. And Lord, as you declutter, Lord, these sanctuaries, get us back to that place where we're in your word and trusting you to speak to us. Realizing that what you have there is to remind us that what you really want is to feast with us. So, Lord, for every Christian here, reignite our hearts for you. As you declutter, Lord, and you tell us that all of the things that we build with, whether it be gold, silver, and precious stones, or haywood and stubble, is tested by fire. Lord, we fear that fire, but we shouldn't if we're building, right? So, Lord, please, as your fire sweeps through, even right now, this room, may we delight in the fact that what's left after the fire is whatever gold, silver, and precious stones were brought in and all the haywood and the stubble blown away in the ash, that the cathedral you intend to build will be built in each of us. Make our hearts your home, our bodies your cathedral, and our lives your tools, please. And as we're dealing with that right now, Lord, if there be any or many in this room who have not said yes to you, then you know it. By the power of your Holy Spirit, show them their need to say yes. And if that's you or you're struggling to know, right now I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen at the end if you're willing. Just simply say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer now. 
And this is it. God, I am a sinner. I've sinned against you. But you created me to be with you. That becomes evident here. But that sin needs to be dealt with. But you so love me that you sent Jesus to die on the cross so that all my sin could be punished on him. Because he was perfect, tempted in every way, yet without sin. So he had no sin to pay for but his own, but, but mine, because none of his own was there. And as that horrible cross and upon it hung my Savior, all my punishment was granted there. And just as you promised, three days later, he rose from the grave to offer me a brand new life so that it isn't just removal, but deliverance. At the cross, I'm removed from the land of bondage and from the, the horrible, just ominous overcast of my guilt and shame and now delivered into your arms, delivered into the son you love, delivered into that right relationship with you, adopted as your own, called your child. That's, I say, I gladly say yes to. So wash me clean of my sin as I declare Jesus my Savior. And adopt me as your own as I declare Jesus my Lord. I'm yours. I'm yours, even as you are mine. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.